Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name is Nick Brax and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. On today's episode, I want to welcome rugby league legend and media personality Phil Gould. Phil's an Australian rugby league broadcaster, journalist administrator and was formerly a player and coach. Since the 1990s, he's had a prominent role in Channel 9's coverage of rugby league as a commentator on their match day coverage and writes for Sydney's Fairfax paper, The Sun Herald. Phil was also the general manager of football for the Penrith Panthers, and before his media career was a State of Origin series and NSWRL Premiership winning coach, and also playing for Newtown, Canterbury, Bankstown and South Sydney. This was one of the first recorded episodes of Move Your Mind, and we just want to let you know that the team are working incredibly hard behind the scenes to improve audio quality and create the best possible experience for each and every one of you. Thank you so much for coming and having a chat to me today, mate. It's... um very feel very fortunate to be able to have you on here you've got an incredible story you've done a lot of stuff I already knew about what you've done but I've looked been looking it up uh re- doing a bit more research and it's pretty impressive how much you've sort of fitted into your life so far just wanted to start off can you just give me a, just a quick background about what you do now and what you've uh done in the past well I'm 62 years of age I was born in 1958 I was born in Tempe Newtown had a great upbringing and I never wanted for anything. We weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination, uh, fairly humble beginnings, but uh, had a wonderful life, you know, mainly built around sport and social life. And I've been blessed in that I've been able to maintain not only an interest in sport, but an active participant and involvement in sport ever since that time. It's, uh, it's been a very blessed life in that respect and thoroughly enjoyable and I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, great. No, thank you for for sharing that. Did you always want to have a career in in sport? Um, And what do you think is the main uh, mindset lesson you've learnt through your through you know being a competitive athlete that you've been able to take into every other you know facet of life since? Well, Nick, I've got to be honest because in the early days you're just bumbling through life. I mean, I left school and I went to university. For me, sport in those days. I was probably a better cricketer than I was a footballer, to be honest. And if there was going to be a future at a higher level, we always thought it would be cricket. But I had a real passion for rugby league. That's what I wanted to play. When I first got graded in rugby league in the higher grades, it was just a learning experience the whole time you were going through. It was a second job. It was never considered to be... It was never really considered a career... But things progressed over the years as you got better at what you were doing, as you played at a higher level, as you got greater confidence in yourself, as you 
and got greater experience playing around the great players that you did with the great coaches that we had. Um, so it wasn't until 1990 that I got the opportunity to go full-time in coaching. Now that's only 30 years ago, it's not a long time, uh, and our game has grown since then. So it's all those early experiences, I look back now, there were learning parts to it. There were people that were very influential. There were, there were very, very difficult times, particularly when you're injured or you feel as though your career's not going in the right direction. There was, you always had a passion to succeed, but that, it was a bumpy road in, uh, at any time in trying to succeed. And that came back to me when I started to coach and started to learn the responsibility of being a coach, that what a coach to these players really meant. And that's when my coaching took on a different dynamic too. And, and for that, I'm eternally grateful because it's, it gives you the opportunity to help a lot of people. For a lot of these kids that come into our lives at a very important stage of their life, kids that are you know, 15, 16, and they've got a bit of a talent to play football, and they've got dreams of doing great things, they can use this experience to become better people, stronger people, better citizens, great fathers, great uh, role models, and active participants in society. And the professional football regime and the junior development regime could sometimes be the only form of love and family and, uh, and mentorship or the, that they'll ever had. You know, the family life has failed them, school life has failed them, or they themselves have a personality where they're, they're struggling to find themselves and find their way. And the football environment has been a saviour for a lot of kids. Massively. And yeah, I, I guess that leads to some questions I'll ask you later on as well when you're talking about you know, what you learnt from being in that position and helping people and, you know, where that translates, I guess, in other aspects of life as well. And it's, you know, it's such an important thing. Um, yeah, with what you're talking about there as well, with athletes, I think we see a lot of that when athletes are transitioning out of professional sport. Uh, it can be really difficult because they've gone from being in that system, having that support, to then really having to reevaluate and question a lot of things. You know, who am I? What am I going to do for the rest of my life? How do I get that sort of sense of purpose again? Have you? What's your experience with that? And do you see that as being a problem in professional sport? Uh, it is, but it's one we're dealing with much better. I mean, it was obviously around back when I played and I retired, but it was kind of like suck it up and get through it. You know, you, you really, there was no one really around looking at the mental health or looking at these as issues. You know, it was kind of... Yep well, my football's over, you know, be tough, get on with it, go and get a job. And, and that's what most of my mates had to do. Mm. And, and some really struggled. And not that we were looking for it. We weren't alert to the signs. We weren't, it wasn't in our psyche to be thinking about those types of things. You know, we see them go through various stages. I see the kids that, that are in their teenage years and they've got hopes and dreams of doing this. And sometimes those hopes and dreams are of their parents or those around them and they feel the real pressure to succeed. Some kids, their family is relying on them to be earning money from professional sport to provide them uh, the very basics. So all these kids are under different sorts of pressures. By the time they come through our system, if you've had a professional rugby league career for any length of time now, we certainly hope that you are better equipped, that you are better prepared for life after football than what we were 20 or 30 years ago. I fear for the kids these days because if they've got any potential whatsoever and the, they get to that narrowing of the funnel where they've got potential to go on and do something. They tend to live a more cocooned existence. They tend to be in a football program full time. The things that were a benefit of being in the workforce while you were playing professional sports for me was that you had immediate 
peer group pressure and mentorship from a different facet of life. You were more in touch with the realities of the world and the realities and needs of family life. You were more in touch with communicating with people on a daily basis where we have taken a lot of that away from the burgeoning professional footballer today. Now, we, we try to replace that by having them involved in community programs and schools programs and junior league programs, helping out with charities and charitable work. But I don't think it really fills the void that is left by being in the workforce and being around peer group pressure and, uh, and other adults and, and learning your yep. way through that area. So. It wasn't really until our football code became full-time that we took on more a guardianship role with these kids. It was far more mentorship and, dare I say, parentship. The opportunity that football provides now, our education and welfare programs are so good. We had a policy of no work, no study, no play. I wanted them doing things outside of football. And when I was at the Panthers recently, uh, for the last eight years, we had something like 94% of our players enrolled in tertiary education, trades, uh, secondary educations, and some were even doing apprenticeships and, uh, and working outside hours as well. The, wow. ki the kids that couldn't afford the time, you know, we could put them into teacher aid programs. We could send them into schools or our own community program to at least give them a taste. Now, the transitioning of this is as they get older, they meet girls, they get married, they have children, then they start to go through this themselves, which gives them a better understanding of what it is that we've been trying to implement with them. And I would hope that nowadays players are far better equipped to handle post-career life than they have been previously. That doesn't mean they don't struggle. That doesn't mean that particularly the high achievers that have been at the top of the tree and to have this sudden anonymity, if you like, and they haven't got the outlet of that competition every week or that feeling of success, even success or failure on the weekend. We live with both. We thrive on both. When that's taken away from you, that competitive stuff, you've got to find something else to do. And I, I know when I stopped playing and for a period there when I gave coaching away, I found I had to get involved with something else that was competitive. I played golf. For other people, they don't. And this is where sometimes, you know, drugs and alcohol, uh, gambling, and these other behaviours come out, which is a signal that they are not handling their feelings, their come down, their depression from mm -hmm. the highs that they used to experience, which mm -hmm. in themselves are like a drug. You know, this is what we play for. We play for those big moments, big crowds, for winning games, and we deal with the disappointment, but at least we're out there competing with it. You know, when all that is taken away from them, when the money is taken away from them, when they learn with the realities of what life is outside of uh, the bubble of football, some of them really do struggle, and we've had some terrible cases. Uh, you know, we have a percentage that end up doing silly things and in jail. We have others that end up with addictions, and, uh, and these are the things that we're much more adept at looking out for right now. I think we're much better with it. Got a long way to go, but we're far better equipped now than we used to be. Yeah, which is the main thing. That's all, all that can be done. I mean, it's great that there are there is that talk about it now. Um, I mean, mental health in general is more spoken about. A lot of athletes are now talking more about mental health. Uh, and like you're saying, having those programs in place uh, to give them that more grounded experience because it really can. It, in, in any industry where you are really having to hyper-focus, having to really you know, compete at that level, whether it's sport, entertainment, 
politics, whatever it is, you, you do get addicted to it and it can feed the ego and it can be really detrimental if you don't have other things like you're saying to, you know, to fall back on. Uh, so I guess and it was a question I was going to ask you sort of, I guess probably the key to your success following retirement as a professional athlete is probably the fact that you did, as you were just saying before, that you had that grounded experience, that you had to work, that you had to connect with other people, that you had to have this very whole sort of experience of life and develop yourself in so many different areas. And that would have meant that the ego didn't get carried away with what you're doing and you didn't become so attached to just that one way of living, I guess, which has probably translated to everything else you've done since playing. Yeah, but I've been fortunate, Nick. I've been lucky in that I haven't had to deal with life without it. If the first time that I was appointed a football coach, my career had tanked and I didn't have a job within two years, I wonder what my life would have been like. I wonder Mm. what I would have done. And I was fortunate in that I was never really faced with that situation. What I find with a lot of players is they can't give it away because of the fear of the unknown. I've never really feared the unknown. And it was the same with coaching. I probably retired from coaching at the height of my powers, at the height of my career. I don't know what the future holds, but I've never, I've never been scared of the future because I've never really been put in a position of having to be without something. But I do recognise it in others. I really do. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's... When I think back over my life and the things that have been an influence... I've personally known a half a dozen footballers that took their own lives. And I never saw it coming at any stage of what was going on in their life and the turmoil that they were feeling to think that that was the only solution to their issues. So it makes you more mindful of, A, what you're feeling yourself and how you're reacting to it, but looking for anything in others or at least encouraging them that you're there for support or that there is support mechanisms around them because quite often you mightn't be able to tell that they're going through turmoil or you mightn't be able to tell that they're having mental issues. They, they hide it very well when in that public arena, but it's other things that you notice that you probably should have noticed before. It's only in hindsight you say, well, maybe that was a sign. Maybe that was an indication. Mm. At Panthers, where I was working, we ended up with 54 full-time staff around the club. And we work with kids from the age of 13 through uh, right through to the player who's 35, 36 years of age, full-time professional, and at all stages of their life, from all backgrounds and what have you. As a club, we constantly met as a staff and we said everyone is working in welfare. Everyone is looking for the signs. And If someone's coming to get more money regularly, if someone's asking for this, if someone's missing physiotherapy meetings, if someone's missing team meetings, if someone's, you know, there are all sorts of signs that we look for that behaviour has changed, behaviour is not what it should be, people have become closed off or people have become less communicative, they've become angrier, they've become sadder, they've become more suddenly outgoing, they might, have, they might be socially now aggressive where they never were, you know, there could be suspicions of drug and alcohol abuse. All these things now that we know are signs that something's not quite right with a kid and that he's dealing with it in the wrong way. It could be sex addiction, it could be gambling addiction, it could be erratic behaviour, it could be risky behaviour. Sometimes these don't mean anything other than they're just having a good time, but quite often it can be a sign that something else is not quite right in their home life, in their own life, in the life of a partner, uh, which all can have a massive effect. And as I say, 
I think often about those blokes I knew who resorted to such drastic measures to solve the problems they were feeling and never wanting to have to experience that again and, and never having the feeling, you know, if only they'd have said something, if only they'd have asked a question, you know, because, you know, you need them to put their hand up or put their hand out sometimes and, and, and seek a bit of assistance. Yeah, massively. And thank you for sharing that. And I mean, that's that's really the conversation as a whole in society as well, that it's an example of why it is so important. We need more education about mental health. We need, I mean, stigma is being reduced dramatically, but it's got a long way to go. Before that, and in the past, we, we haven't had that knowledge. So we haven't known what to look out for. We haven't, uh, when people have been suffering, they haven't been made to feel that it's okay to talk about it. They haven't made, especially men, <clears throat> that's a big one, yeah. And I guess sport would be one of the prime examples, you know, athletes that, that are revered, that are seen to be macho and tough and they should be able to put up with anything. And, you know, male, I always say when I am speaking on mental health, male or female, it doesn't matter, we're human. We all feel things, good and bad. We're going to have ups and downs and we've got emotions. Men have emotions and... It's crazy that men have been made to feel that it's not okay to talk about it. Well, that's the thing. And, and you know, I'll be honest, back in my era, it was like I said, you know, it was suck it up if things weren't going right in your life. Yeah. And, and that was your attitude. You know, that was what you thought part of being a man was, to deal with yeah. these issues yourself. Don't whinge about it. Don't complain about it. Don't talk about it. And it builds up in you over a period of time to where it comes out in other behaviour that can be risky and dangerous to yourself and dangerous to others. It's strange how it happens. You know, I can feel depressed, I can feel sad, but I haven't got depression. They're, they are emotions. It doesn't mean you've got a mental health issue. We all feel the, the wide range of emotions. But it's those that can't distinguish between what's normal emotions and what's really happening with them at the time. And it may be a deep-rooted issue that they're not even aware of themselves yep. that has influenced their thinking influence their self-talk, the way they talk to themselves, the way they explain things that happen to them. One little exercise we did with a football team, and we tried to do it regularly, was um, I was introduced to a sports psychologist and he introduced a, a test for optimism and pessimism, how you explain things that happen to you, you know, whether it was good or bad on a football field or in your life. And the explanation that you gave yourself, that why that had happened to you personally, and it was very revealing about the people that have such a, a way of explaining the world as it impacts on themselves and why it happens to them. And their explanations are so, they seem strange. They say, how can you feel that way? How can you be so negative or, or feel so badly about that when it wasn't your fault? It wasn't your, it had nothing to do with you, your character, your personality. And, it's, and they're the things I think that is helping people explain what this means to them and how they're feeling yeah. about it and, and understanding the feelings they're having about it and an understanding that if they're having trouble deciphering that, what they're feeling, what does this mean? What am I, what am I feeling and why am I having these feelings and what does it mean? Mm -hmm. You need professional help sometimes to make those distinctions. You need people that have experienced it before or at least understand what you're feeling and you need to understand that you are not the only one. This is not exclusive. It's the to, most important thing, isn't it? Yeah. This is not exclusive to you. You're not, you're not the only one that ever felt like this. You're not the only one that ever went through this. You're not the only one that, 
that sits alone in your room or puts a head on the pillow at night and can't sleep because these things are churning through your mind. And the thought that everyone is looking at you or talking about you or that something that bad has happened to you or is said about you or something that, you know, um, is embarrassing to you is magnified a million times over because mm-hmm. you think everyone else is looking at you and thinking about you in that way when it's not. That is not happening. And, and you need the mechanisms and the tools to deal with that and satisfy yourself that you're okay. But it's also okay to help people, to have people help you to find that realization. It's yeah. the one I worry about. It's, it's the one that is internally dealing with something that doesn't feel as though they have another option. Mental health and well-being are real issues in the construction industry. Men in construction are twice as likely to take their own life compared to the ones who work in other industries. And that's just not good enough. With John Holland's help, we want to make a change. We've joined together to have honest conversations about mental health, life and stories of people who have overcome challenges. When we hear about stories and struggles that sound a bit like ours, we can learn from each other and remember that we're not alone. Education is the key. Education, communication, mm. Mm. And, 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 and having a personable nature with people breaks down that stigma so that people can put their hand up. Now, we, we've had a couple of very high-profile cases in rugby league over the last couple of years. Some of our greatest achievers, very highest achievers, who've put themselves in for rehabilitation, who've put themselves in for mental health assistance and have been prepared to talk about it and come out and say, you know, I had to put my hand up because I couldn't deal with it myself. I now know how to explain the way I was feeling. I now know that, you know, it wasn't the end of the world or I shouldn't be feeling like that or the things that I wasn't aware of what made me feel that way. I, was, I wasn't aware of what happened in my past had such a big effect on the way I feel about myself and the way I think others look at me and the way they perceive me and, and the negative view I have of, of, of what they may be feeling. It's an interesting subject. It's, it must be terrible for people who are, who are afflicted with it. But, you know, it's not a death sentence. There is help there for them. Exactly. And, I mean, you've made so many point, amazing points just there with what you've spoken about. And, you know, that's, that's a key thing. It is not a death sentence. Unfortunately, it can lead in extreme cases to suicide, and that can be prevented by us having more conversations about it, by more education, by breaking down stigmas, um, as you mentioned before, you know, I, I, I'm not a psychologist. I, I just go and, and speak and every single time something comes out of it. And one of, you know, extreme cases sometimes where I've been in a factory with, you know, blokey guys that have been there for 40 years that I've, when I first walked in the room there, you know, you feel like, you know, they're, they're sniggering at the whole thing and they don't, no one wants to be there. And afterwards I've had people come up to myself and the sort of HR team that we did it with and, and go and get help and tell us that they had plans to end their life just days, you know, after we did this talk and they went and got help. And this is, was a guy that, you know, no one, his family, no one in the organisation would have ever picked him to, to have any mental health issues at all. He was actually the one who put on the front and, you know, was there for other people. And you just don't know because these people haven't been given that outlet. And the other really important point you made is it's the storytelling you could be the most successful athlete in the world, but be feeding yourself these negative stories saying, I'm not good enough. That's not enough. I'm, I'm pathetic. I, I need to do more. And a lot of that's 
normally planted there from something that's happened to you in your childhood or in the past or something's triggered it and you're feeding it. it's like a computer program it sort of needs to be rewired but if we don't have that knowledge about how to change that how to talk about it how to get help how to see a professional then it's probably not going to change absolutely and i i worry about today's world i worry about social media and and, uh, and the amount of negative communication that kids can receive you know from school age from the time they first it's get terrifying mobile it is absolutely terrifying i've spoken to prominent judges in Australia who are dealing in the courts with a number of issues around social media and intimidation and bullying and the precedent these kids are put under. And now we deal with it differently and, you know, with good fortune, we get over those moments and and move on. But some people need help dealing with it. To be talking about it is enough to show people that what they're feeling and can't talk about or haven't spoken about or are too scared because they think they're the only one, that you are not the only one. You are, you are not the only one to go through this. And what you're going through in the overall scheme of things, this too will pass. This too will move on. You will become stronger out of this and you will look back on that in time and think, why was I so worried about that? Why did I allow that to beat me down? Why did I allow that to make me so upset? Why did it stop me from going out and socialising? Why did it stop me from going out with my friends? Why did it stop me from answering phone calls and, and locking the door and, and not going out? Absolutely. Why did it cost me a relationship? Why did it cost me money? Why did it cost me, you know, why did I abuse myself with alcohol and drugs? Why was I easily led down that path? And they're all ways that people deal with it that, as we know, are unsuccessful ways of dealing with it. Uh, but, you know, they need help. Everyone needs help at some stage. Absolutely. No, no I love what you said there as well. And, and, you know, I say this all the time. When I, everyone's got a story. Everyone's been through their own hardship, their own mental hardship. And there's no version that's more difficult or less difficult. It's all relative to the person. But really, it's just we all need to learn to be able to talk more about our own stories and show that it's okay. Like you said, you're not alone. I think that is one of the most common things. People will get caught in these daily issues and stories they're feeding themselves and and you start telling yourself, what's wrong with me? Why do I find everything so hard? Why why is everyone else so much more accomplished or better, you know, just handle life better than I do? And it's actually not the case. Everyone That's not the case. Everyone has their own, you know, doubts and their own struggles in different ways. And it's more actually just, and it's sort of a mindfulness technique, it's being able to catch that thought and say, you know what, no, that's normal for me to be thinking that, but I'm okay. And everyone else, you know, it, I'm not alone. Um, and it sort of leads to the next sort of, I wanted to just ask you a quick couple of questions about, you know, the current coronavirus situation. And I think that is something that people probably need to do more than ever right now, remind themselves that I'm not alone. We're actually all in this together. It's affecting everyone. And that's a really important thing for people to remember. Well, first of all, for me, I think it's managing the information that you get or processing the information that you get, because we've seen some terrible scenes from overseas. We get the bad scenes from Italy and Spain and now in New York. And there is a hysteria around the media that the way they're covering this, that can get people awfully frightened and awfully insecure about what's about to come their way. Now, we have to be careful, and it is obviously a very nasty virus, and it can cause death to vulnerable people, and you know we're nowhere near finished yet. But 
we'll get through this. The world will get past this eventually. And, you know, we're all playing our part. Being isolated now is not only helping yourself, but it's helping the rest of your community, your family and friends, your loved ones, their families and friends and loved ones. And, and we're all playing our part. And I think there's been a real spirit of community and togetherness in all of this. Whilst we've been isolated, I think the, the togetherness has actually got stronger because every one of us is locked up. We're all locked up. We only go out when we really have to. And when we do, we get nervous about where we're going and, and, and how we're interacting with people. And that's very, very natural. We all feel that way. There is a great strain on kids not being able to see their parents or grandparents not being able to see their kids. And Social interaction has dried up. We're looking at new ways to communicate. You know, my wife is in a book club and she's in another club. Well, now they're doing all this online and they're learning to use technology and just so that they've got another voice on the end of the line to talk to and go through their normal interaction. And, and there are people out there who might not have the technology or might not have the, the ability to do that and might not. I worry about them. I worry those that have a feeling of loneliness out of all this. But you're not alone. You know, you are not alone provided that you can get access to things like this and to people like you and um, to other people you've you've got to keep communicating just whilst you're in isolation communicate find ways to communicate with the outside world and to communicate with friends and relatives and and other people as well or otherwise communicate with people who can help you uh, and there are any number of areas available now where you can ring and just talk to people it's not, it's not easy for anyone. No one's doing it any easier than anyone else in this environment. And, you know, the people to be doing it really tough as a, at the moment. And, and, of course, those that have lost loved ones. And, you know, but I think Australia here in this country, we've done an exceptional job at the moment to limit the exposure to what we have. How the world recovers from this is anyone's guess. Economically, you know, there'll be people out there that have lost jobs or lost job opportunities or their businesses are now really struggling. It, you're not the only one. There are options available and there's support available. The government's doing a great job with its financial support. And it's, it's, it's a thunderbolt out of the blue. It's come from nowhere and we've got to deal with it. But I, I feel a sense of togetherness in that. I, I feel a sense of togetherness in the isolation that we're going through at the moment. Yeah, I think communication is absolutely key. And, and like you said, it's an equaliser, really. It doesn't matter what someone's status is, who they are, where they're from, everyone's going to be, everyone's affected. So in that way, it, it does create that connectedness, which sort of ties into what we're talking about before in mental health in general as well. It's about trying to break down walls and let people know that no one's unique in it. We all have our own struggles and communication is the key to really dealing with that, you know, longer, longer term. It um, is. You've got, you've got to communicate. You've got to communicate with the outside world. We're only a short distance into this, um, but we adjust. We've got to adjust. We've got to, you know, we've got to adjust to the outside world and, and learn to live with it and learn to accommodate it. And the big part of that is the communication side of it. You know, it's not feeling as though you're, you're the only one in this. You're not. We're all in this. Every one of us is in it. Yeah, absolutely. You just need sometimes to lean a little bit. It's not much to change the way you explain the way you think. The fact that you think that is not the problem. It's how you explain that to yourself. You know, and as you said before, okay, it's natural to feel like that. It's natural to have that initial first reaction, all right? That's the one I can't control. I can't control that first thought that comes into my mind, 
I can't control that. Now, as a professional footballer, we call it attitude control. We learn to control our attitude because if I drop the ball or a teammate drops the ball or something bad happens to us, you know, we get a bad break, a bad call or what have you, we can't control that first emotion. We can't control that first thought. But what we learn to do is dismiss that straight away as that thought can't help me right now. That emotion and that feeling can't help me yep. right now. Yep. I need to move on to the next moment and concentrate on what comes next. And we call that attitude control, be able to change what we're thinking to what we should be thinking. We can't control that first thought. The first thought that comes into our brain, we, we can't control that. We sometimes can't even control our first reaction, right? It's an instantaneous thing. It, it's, but we can control what happens then. We can say, we can quickly explain why we feel that way, accept ourselves for it, even if it's not a good thing, accept ourselves for it. Well, that was our reaction. Explain it, move on and get on to the next decision you've got to make and get on to the next choice you've got to make. And that's a really important thing. Just because you have that first initial thought and that first emotional reaction, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. That doesn't mean that you're different to anyone else. It's how you then lean from that point to the positive point of how I deal with that emotion or how I can say, well, you know, that was wrong. I need to correct that or that was wrong. I need to deal with it. Or right, I felt like that, but you know, it's not the end of the world. I can move on from that and, and make my next decision a good one and go from there. Mm. So it's the, the planned decision choice that is the important one. The emotional response, the quick response that happens at the instant you something happens to you or someone says something to you or, uh, you know, something goes wrong, you can't control that. None of us can. Yep. None of us can control that thought. It's, it's in our head before it starts. But we will get better at dealing with that and we will get better at having better first emotions than that and dismi quickly dismissing the ones that are just going to be cancerous for us, that are just going to be, yeah. that affect our thinking and affect our behaviour and affect our response. You know, we, the thought can be wrong, but the response doesn't have to be. No, it's, it's a great way of putting it. And, and, and it really is a mindfulness technique that you're talking about. And we can't control it. So it's looking at what can we control? We can't control. We can't control what happens to us. You know, this coronavirus is an example. We we can't control that. We would have never predicted this would happen. We can't control how we, like you said, how we first, what comes into our mind, but we can control how we then deal with that. And that's when a problem happens. If we don't control that, something can go from being 10% level of discomfort to then festering and you th you're ruminating on it. And it becomes this huge problem that you forget even where it, where it began. It's like a virus. So it's, it and, and it, exas it exacerbates the problem, you know, a, yep. a, a, a problem in your personal life or your, your love life or, you know, a work problem and those sorts of things that can lead to, you know, feelings and they lead to reactions that only exacerbate the problem and make it worse and lead to further problems. Having the tools to be able to say, well, last time I felt like this, this is what I did. This is how I felt. This is how I reacted. Yep. And that's what it got me. You know, I don't want to go yep. down that path again. I need a better choice now right at this moment. Even if it's just, yep. just to sit and think and, and forgive yourself and be kind to yourself, um, you know, for feeling that way. And this is, you know, I, I couldn't control what happened there, but I can control what happens from this point on. Now, that sounds really easy to say it. 
The other part of this is when things do happen to you or you've had a stressful day or a bad day, as you say, that ability to be kind to yourself and sit and just have some time to yourself to unjumble all the confusion that's happened during that time or that day or how you felt about it and Mm. Uh, you know, and, and be able to put your head down on the pillow and say, all right, I've dealt with that. You know, when I rise in the morning, this is going to be a different scenario and, and move on from there. And, and part of that is putting your hand up, looking for assistance. Yeah. And to your point, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. No one, you know, it's never going to be easy, but it's like, I think people need to look at it like anything. You want to, you want to get fit. You want to lose weight. You want to start a new diet, whatever we're trying to do, it's going to be difficult. Any new habit's difficult at the beginning. If we want to try and get better at uh, controlling our negative thinking, it's a habit. So it's, we're probably going to be pretty bad at, it at the beginning, but it's being aware of it. It's doing it on a daily basis. And if we do it regularly, we'll get better at it like anything else. So yeah, just to finish up, um, you do a, a huge amount in addition to everything else we've spoken about. You do a lot of community work. Is there Anything in particular you want to mention or just for listeners, anyone listening to this where you would suggest they could go or giving them a bit of insight into that work you do? Look, there are any number of ways that we can we can help out in our community and it's mainly through charitable causes and, and I'm lucky in the, in the roles that I play, there are plenty of charitable causes and, and needs that come to us to use our sport as a platform for awareness, uh, to communicate with the people and get to the people that they need to be with. So... Um, yep. it, it's easy for me to access avenues that we can be of assistance and to teach others how they can be of assistance too. You know, so it's there is always volunteer work and charitable work around, and it's it's, it's a pretty simple apostle. It's just to be kind to people and, and lend mm-hmm. lend assistance where you can, and and it, it makes you feel better about yourself. Being able to help others is probably the greatest elixir that you'll find. You know, and and, and helping out in someone else's life is is a great soother for your own life and the way that you feel. And uh, and that's why I applaud people like yourself that have been through difficult times, not only being able to repair yourself and, re- and come out the other side, but to devote then your life to helping others who are, who are probably dealing with what you've dealt with and, and showing them that there is a way out and there is a, there's a success story there waiting to happen. So, you know, it's not about pushing causes. It's, there are yeah. plenty of ways, if you look for it, on being able to, to volunteer and help people and to be of assistance to people. And if I, I heard a saying once, and I, I, I don't know who said it, but it, it, it always, you know, those with the power to make change also have an obligation to do so, which means if I've got the wherewithal to help to make change, if I've got the well, wherewithal to make a difference in someone else's life, then I feel like I've got an obligation to do that. And Plenty of people have helped me along the way in my life. Plenty of people have gone out of their way to be supportive of me or to uh, to help me. And uh, you know, you've always got the love of your parents and your family to, to help you through difficult times and uh, you know, mates and that sort of thing. But it's um, it's it's something now that you never say no to if there's an opportunity there to help someone or uh, because I can put myself in their position. I can readily put myself where their head is at the moment and say. You know, it would have been good if when I was feeling like that, there was someone there to lend a hand. And more often than not, there was. So, um, you know, you just try to be that, that hand that they reach for. You know, like I say, put your hand up or put your hand out, one or the other, and, and there'll be someone there to take it for you. There, there's actually nothing that makes you feel better than helping other people, no matter what we, you know, do or achieve. I don't think there's much better feeling. So it's, some, it's something we can all try and, you know, do in our own way, just do whatever we can that's available to us to try and just help in a small way. Um, 
So thank you for that answer, mate, and thank you so much for this chat today. I've just got one line, just quick answers to, to these to finish up. Um, I've just got five questions here. First one, what's your best childhood memory that comes to mind? My childhood memories now revolve around mum and dad, you know, with dad passing away four years ago. So it's just all those memories of being kids and the things that he did for us. Yep. What do you think's the biggest burden on mental health in society today? Uh, the biggest burden on mental health? Lack of information, lack of knowledge, lack of awareness of the help that's available. What's your personal definition of happiness? Happiness is um, self-satisfaction. I think in being kind to yourself, you know, in accepting yourself for what you are and what you feel. Do you see mental health in society improving in 10 years' time? Uh, we've got to get better at how we deal with it. We deal with it a lot better now than we did 10 years ago certainly a lot better than we did 20 years ago. And we're going to need to because I, I, I worry about the world of social media on our kids and what they're subjected to and how they decipher that uh, for their own lives. Yep, great answer. And final one, uh, what's the most courageous thing you've ever done? This. <laughs> 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 uh, well, yeah. yeah. I don't know, probably have children. It's probably a lot. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot, but no, look, thank you so much for coming and chatting to me today, mate. It's been, um, I, I honestly feel, you know, very honoured to have you come and do it, do this chat with me because I majorly respect you and what you do and everything that you're about. So it means a lot. And I think this will really help a lot of people. You know, Pleasure, so Thank you so much. Thank you for those kind words, but you know, the, the credit all goes to you. Uh, you're the one that's doing this and uh, making such a difference in other people's lives. And I wish you all the well into the future with it. And I hope you get to more and more people and help as many people as you can. I appreciate it. Thank you, mate. This episode of Move Your Mind was produced and edited by Tim Buzard. We'd like to thank John Holland for proudly sponsoring this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Move Your Mind. We're going to be releasing new episodes every week and we would love it if you could subscribe on your favourite platform, leave a comment, leave a star rating, recommend us to a friend and help support us on this journey. Thanks to Phil Gould for joining me today for Move Your Mind. Join me, Nick Brax, in Mental Health Masterclass, where you can access cinema quality essential mental health education from world-leading experts anytime, anywhere. Each 12 to 15-minute module comes with comprehensive workbooks and a range of printable books with optional tasks, behavior change tools, information, and guidance to create healthy, preventative long-term habits. Go to courses.nickbrax.com to enroll, or simply go to nickbrax.com and click on the Mental Health Masterclass icon and subscribe to receive a free PDF tip sheet to help you create simple daily wellness habits. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.